0: Thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Motley Fool Money. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com slash fool.
1: Everybody
2: needs money. That's why they call it money. Not best.
0: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger, and from Total Income, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey, hey. hey. We We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Pulitzer Prize winner Stephen Perlstein is our guest, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with General Electric. GE's third quarter profits came in 40% lower than Wall (laughs) Street was expecting. New CEO John Flannery submitted his entry for understatement of the year when he called it, quote, a very challenging quarter. And, Ron, (laughs) interesting to see the stock, because this is a stock that typically does not move all that much, and right at the open it was down 8%, but it did recover Friday morning.
2: Because I think it's a bet on the future, because the past is over, and Flannery's in there, and he's he's being pretty serious about this. Everything is up for review. Everything is up for exam- examination. Every stone turned. He says, "No sacred cows." I think that's important because it's been mismanaged for years. I think what you're going to see probably is to look to see what doesn't fit, and then you'll start to see some some dispositions, some selling of things. And what's important to keep an eye on is the dividend. Is that in danger? Because if it is, and it probably is, a lot of people will be very upset.
0: Wait a second before I go to Jason. H- how much danger it is? Is it in? Because for whatever GE stock has done over the past decade or two, the dividend was something that you could always count on.
2: You're seeing little, little, little kind of <laughs> changes in attitude, saying you know the dividend is is sacred, and well, then maybe we should take a look, and we're then we're going to do what's appropriate, and now you know it's on the table and it's under review. So, I I think slowly, 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 they're, they're, they're leaning towards having to make a change. Because there's a lot of liabilities to this business. The pension liability a lot of people don't think about is humongous here. So, to fund the pensions, the CapEx, capital expenditures, and the dividend, Based on current cash flow, you can't do that. The payout ratio does not support that
3: dividend. He's walking around with this sort of mantra that doesn't fit. Like Ron said, get rid of it. Right? <laughs> nice. I mean, he's just. Uh, I, I like that though. I mean, I think that Flannery is GE's Alan Mulally, and I think that in the near term, it's easy to be critical, concerned, perhaps. But I think longer term, when you look at this company five, ten years down the road. He's shoring this company up. And I mean, it's not like they're going to cut the dividend completely, I don't think. I mean, if they have to cut the dividend somewhat, I think at least it's something you have to consider because we've seen companies before in times of trouble, they'll pull back on that dividend to make sure that they have the business, the balance sheet shored up. And like Ron mentioned there, those pension liabilities, that is a real challenge that they will have to address not 10 years from now. They have to address that right now. But I really do feel like. Patient shareholders right now with GE will be rewarded if they can if they can sort of see through this trying time because I think Flannery's intentions are good and he seems to have a good plan.
4: I think I think I think cut the dividend to zero. I mean I think this is the moment. Whoa zero! I think you you throw in the kitchen sink. Send your email too. Look, (laughs) if you're the new CEO, you're trying to dramatically change the culture, change the capital allocation strategy, change the future for GE, which has been kind of on a wrong track for nearly two decades now. This isn't isn't this the time to just throw it all out the window. I mean, you yes. make
2: a lot of enemies doing you that. Probably
4: will, but you know what? You'll probably the stock price will go down for sure, but this this sets the stage I think for a new GE one that's cleaner that, you know, that can invest in the right places, doesn't have these legacy costs or legacy obligations, you know, in on their balance sheet. You, I think you, it's the right way to go.
2: They're going to be able to cut billions out of, of expenses and they are going to shed 20 billion or so, they say of Of struggling businesses. Um, so now we turn to it's really been a capital allocation problem, really. Amel just did it did a terrible job of buying businesses and selling businesses at the wrong time. Um, as we said, the liabilities are too high, the dividend is too high. And if Flannery can bring capital allocation discipline to this company, you might have a good investment.
0: Shares of Netflix down slightly this week after a third-quarter report, Maddie, that is strong by any objective measure. They brought in 5.3 million new subscribers. Once again, that was higher than expected. Is it just because the stock is so insanely high right now? Well, it's and it's had such a tremendous run this year. So, the fact that it's given up a few
4: percentage points after what otherwise were great earnings, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, but you said it: the subscriber numbers are really the story. Uh, the international numbers, subscriber numbers, of 44% year over year. I mean, that just blows away anything uh, you know. Investors, including me, were thinking they could do this year, and that's been really the story. Um, I thought there was an interesting quote by uh, CEO Reed Hastings on the conference call. You know, we've talked about Netflix's market opportunity as well. How many broadband users are there in the world? How's that growing, and how what kind of share of of that can uh, Netflix get? he on the commercial said, well, you know, I tend to think of it as people. All the people on the planet will get the benefit of the internet over the next 20 years, and we hope that all of them will get to enjoy Netflix also. Is, I, it, is addressable market is the entire planet? It might be the entire it's, population. It's a th- business plan. It is. There you go. I, so, you know, maybe a new benchmark there for market opportunity. But I think that's important for a number of reasons. Because I think if you, if you're, if you buy Netflix right now at today's price, at an $85 billion market cap, at a valuation that a lot of investors would call insane... I think you have to believe that this is a company that can achieve within a reasonable amount of time something like on the order of 500 million subscribers, because the content costs for this business are going the wrong way. They're going to spend between seven and eight billion dollars on content next year, something 17 billion over the next few years. I think that number gets revised up. The content cost per subscriber is growing faster than the revenue per subscriber. That's unsustainable. So. Can they get to a point where that number plateaus? The subscriber number continues to grow. That's where they need to get.
0: Yeah, Jason. When you think about how Netflix recently announced that they were raising prices uh, to a person, we all agreed. Well, of course they have that pricing power. But as Maddie indicated, if if the costs are going up higher than their ability to raise prices, then. Maybe not in the next year or two, but starting in 2020 and beyond, this becomes a serious problem.
3: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's sort of what sticks on my mind in regard to Netflix. Because what we track quarter in quarter out is the growth in that obligation, that content obligation, versus the growth in revenue. And revenue, at some point or another, they're going to have sort of a saturated user base, and so the growth in revenue is going to have to come from uh, price increases to, to some extent. And and I just wonder. How far they can go with that. I mean, I think it's fair to expect that they will raise prices every year to two years. Now, as long as they can keep, I think, a core, simple, uh, low-cost option for all viewers out there, that'll probably behoove them. Uh, and then offer sorts of, of step plans from there for different sorts of definition, or how many viewers, or what have you. But yeah, it all, it's that's the question that I keep on coming back to, is how far can they really take that pricing? I think in the near term, it's a pretty easy, easy no-brainer that they can keep on escalating prices. But 10 years down the road, I'm not sure they're going to be beholden to those content costs, I think, in perpetuity, really. So, so call me a dumb value investor, but all those great things that we said could
2: happen, content costs mitigating, and growth going up, and prices rising, that's got to be baked into the current stock price to to support this kind of a market cap. So, what they would have to exceed all those amazing things we just said for the stock to continue to be a good investment. Why would I put my money into a a bet like that?
4: Well, I, I think what's probably not priced in is that Netflix in 10 years is the dominant internet tv platform. In other words, it kind of reaches what Reed Hastings says, which is Everybody. yeah, most people, most people in the world have a Netflix account. I think that's going to be hard to achieve when when Amazon's spending billions, Apple says they're going to spend over a billion this year. I think YouTube is ramping up their spending on content. Everyone, I mean, Hulu, I mean, we can go on, the list goes on. Can they maintain a brand that People recognize that people want to subscribe to. That's a, you know a familiar app for most people in the world. That is a heck of a goal to shoot for. Yeah.
0: Shares of PayPal hitting a new all-time high on Friday after third-quarter profit and revenue came in higher than expected. PayPal has a few payment methods in its portfolio, Jason, and Venmo really getting it done this last quarter.
3: And the war on cash continues. (laughs) Feeling really good about this. Uh, Listen, I'll go as far to say that I think that PayPal is a stock that virtually every investor should have in their portfolio. I mean, it plays into what I think is. In my book the most attractive long-term trend out there in the move towards electronic payments and I think PayPal is a company that is really helping to guide the way clearly a company that's winning in the space and I think when you get to the size of their network and the dollars that are flowing through their through their model it's a network that's going to keep on getting stronger and I think it's going to continue to keep on winning and when you look at some of these numbers it's just amazing to think about the top line was up 22% earnings per share up 31% they have 218 million active customers now and had 114 billion dollars in payment volume that flowed through over the past quarter. That was versus 87 billion a year ago. 35% of that's now coming from mobile devices. So remember we talked about Facebook when they first went public, would they be able to make that shift to mobile? That was a question I think with PayPal, a very fair one, but clearly they're doing the right things there. It's not even that expensive of a stock when you look at it. I mean, the trailing 12 months 3 billion dollars in free cash flow puts it around 26 times today. I think it's a high-quality business in a very attractive space there for the coming decade and beyond. So, I own shares. We own shares in a million-dollar portfolio. Just call it out as a Best Buy now. It's. It's. it's I think it's going to be a great holding here for years to come.
0: And Ron, I don't know about your kid in college, but my kid in college, uh, back when we were in college <laughs> and we needed money, would be like, hey, Had uh, cash mom, a dad, check. could you send a check? <laughs> and uh, my kid is like, can you just Venmo me some yeah, money? Yeah, Venmo's a big I'm thing. Not-
2: my only problem with Venmo is that two people can have a Venmo account that connects to the same bank account. So, my wife and I have one bank account, we can't each have a Venmo. That's kind of annoying. I, I imagine they will remedy that in the future.
0: It was two years ago that PayPal was spun out from eBay. eBay also reporting earnings this week. Third quarter results, not great, Maddie, and the guidance for Q four wasn't particularly great either.
4: Yeah, the ugly sister of that uh, of that breakup. <laughs> uh, you know, yes, I mean with eBay, it's uh, I mean they actually had a somewhat decent quarter relative to the earlier expectations, but you know revenue. Gross merchandise volume only up around 9%, um, which is, they call that a good quarter. But if you think about it, the overall e commerce market in the US is growing 14 to 15% this year. So take that into context, it seems like eBay is probably losing share in e commerce. I thought the StubHub revenue number up 5% was a little disappointing. When I think about eBay, I think of a very profitable, Strong e-commerce business—a company that probably will grow in the single digits generates a free cash flow yield of 30%. That's something Amazon could only dream of, but it's just not going to grow. I think I think Amazon's vertically integrated approach to e-commerce, with fulfillment, shipping, payments, all those things combined, really gave them the edge for the third-party sellers, which were vital to eBay. And so, and it's reflected in the stock. If you look at eBay, even if you adjust for PayPal eBay stock price is up 75 percent over the last five years. Amazon is up over 300 percent. That's that's a pretty big disparity.
0: If they could go back in time a couple of years, would they have been better off keeping PayPal in house?
4: No, I think I think the spinoff was ultimately good for for both businesses. I think there was more value created that way. I just think if they go back in time, eBay is going to make some bigger steps to follow more of the Amazon model than what they chose to do.
0: Coming up, more earnings headlines and surprising news out of the restaurant industry. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. On Friday, the biggest winner on the New York Stock Exchange was Skechers USA, blowout profits in the third quarter sent shares of the footwear retailer up more than 35%. A lot of good stuff in the Skechers report, Ron. What was your headline? Didn't
2: see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a good one? Uh, I guess maybe international wholesale business up 26%. Uh, Same store sales up 4.4%. Domestic wholesale operations turned positive uh, for the first time earlier this year. Hasn't been positive in a while. So perhaps they're firing on all cylinders ish. Mm. Um, You know, expectations were pretty darn low. Stock wasn't even up before this week. Um, And so this represents the, the, the. complete appreciation for the entire year. So, uh, low expectations, numbers came in good, and you saw the stock soar.
0: Well, and since you uh, referred to yourself uh, in the previous segment as a value guy, uh, what do you do with a, a situation like this? Because this was a stock that was down, and there weren't huge expectations. They crushed them, credit for that. yeah. What do you do with a stock that's up 35% in one day?
2: All right. so first, understand that net income being up 42% is a little misleading because they had a huge tax benefit. So, operating earnings were only up about 13%, first thing to recognize. Stock was relatively cheap at 15 times, now after the move we're at 18.5. Still not too shabby, pretty cheap still, as long as they can continue to execute, and based on their comments, it looks like they will for at least the next year.
0: Procter & Gamble's first quarter report was mixed. Profits higher than expected, revenue lower than expected. Uh, The report was mixed, Jason. The reaction to the report was uh,
3: just flat-out negative. Yeah, I really feel like this should be a better investment than it has been recently. It reminds me a lot of McCormick, in that I defy you to find a household in this country that doesn't have at least a couple of Procter & Gable's products in it. But the problem is that it's a really big business now, at $230 billion market cap. And so you need to see value start coming back in the form of dividends, share buybacks, and whatnot. They're not really nailing it on the repurchase side. It's down just about counts just about four and a half percent since 2013. I can see why Nelson Peltz was trying to go activist here. I mean, I think there is probably an opportunity to unlock some value there. But if you look at sort of you look at this consumer space now, we're seeing more brands coming to market that are focusing on these messages of being more environmentally friendly or more customer centric. Uh, look at Harry's razors, for example. I mean, that's a sponsor of our show, and they're taking that Razor business and really focusing on that customer-centric model. And I think Gillette has really let uh, that pass them by, and I think one of Harry's competitors even was acquired by Unilever. So, you don't want to wake up 10 years from now and look at this space and think, what in the hell just happened here? it's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen slowly, but surely. You can let these new brands pass you right by, and then, then Procter & Gamble could find themselves in a real pickle. Uh, so, a big business with a lot of great brands, I think they probably just need to do a better job of, of exploiting that and then figuring out new ways to return value to shareholders. So, as you said, Procter & Gamble, $230 billion,
0: General Electric that we led the show with, just over 200000000000 billion. Let's say, for the sake of argument, you don't want to go the radical Matt Argusinger route of, cut the <laughs> dividend to zero. <laughs> (laughs) Got everything! Um, Isn't the obvious move with these two huge, diverse businesses to just start identifying major divisions to just sell off? Because there was a point in time where a big part of Procter & Gamble's business, or certainly a significant part, was food? We saw them shed that pretty steadily over the past decade. It really seems like between GE and Procter and Gamble, there should be a lot of business units that are on sale right now.
3: I think with Procter and Gamble, it is—it's a very easy argument to make because they have so many brands in that portfolio. You go through and identify ten to fifteen laggards and just get rid of them and really focus on what you're doing well. Uh, as far as General Electric, I'll let Ron speak to that. <laughs> no, yeah, you've got to get rid of something. You know, interestingly
2: with GE, the healthcare business, which the new CEO ran could be one to get rid of because it doesn't necessarily fit in the other industrial businesses, um, but it happens to be a real strong one. So that could be one way to unlock some value.
0: They're keeping the lights, though, right? They're keeping the lighting uh, business.
2: Don't worry, <laughs> they bring good things to <laughs> life. And
3: let's be clear, though. I mean, Procter and Gamble's been a good investment for investors over the last five years. You've made money, but it has has been outpaced by the market, and that's really that's really the measuring stick you need to consider.
0: As we've talked about before, tough times in the restaurant industry of late, but a good week for shareholders of Ruby Tuesday. Uh, Not an earnings report, but a lifeline from a private equity firm in Atlanta that is taking Ruby Tuesday private, and shares of Ruby Tuesday up 20% this week on the buyout news. Was I the only one stunned by this, that that someone looked at Ruby Tuesday and found uh, apparently enough value that they wanted to Plunked down a twenty percent premium for
2: this. It's probably largely a real estate play. They own about two hundred and seventy of the sites um, where their locations sit. They own all of the buildings, but uh, the real estate itself only about two hundred and seventy sites. So there is value there um, that can probably be unlocked. I don't even the business probably can be saved if you really shrink it down and only keep the the performing units and then get get rid of the real estate of the, of the rest.
3: Sounds too much like that Sears play to me. I, I think <laughs> you just got to steer clear of those. Oh, there's value in the real estate.
0: Let's go to our man behind the glass, Steve Broido. Steve, uh, we know you're a fan of Olive Garden, Ruby Tuesday. Do, have you ever been? And if so, when was the last time?
5: Uh, I have been. I can't remember when. It's one of those restaurants that you kind of—it's like TGI Fridays, Ruby Tuesdays, Bennigan's. I don't know, Houlihan's. Hula hands. It just doesn't—it <laughs> doesn't register. I, it's, I'm just not mindful of it.
0: So to Ron's point about potentially they—they they focus on the performing restaurants and sell off the others. Do you think that opens the way? For more olive gardens around I
5: surely hope so. I surely hope so. All right. Ron, Don't call me Shirley. Ron Gross,
0: Jason Moser, Matt Argesinger. Guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize winner Stephen Pearlstein. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Full Money.
3: Goodbye.
0: Before we go on, I want to say thanks again to Harry's for supporting this week's episode of Motley Fool Money. I've been using Harry's products for years. I love them. It's the smoothest shave I've ever had, period. And Harry's is so confident that you're going to love their blades. They're giving you their trial set for free. Just cover the $3 in shipping. That's it! I don't know what you're using for shaving right now, but you got to give Harry's a try, because it's just going to make your face feel better, and you only get one face in life. So treat it right. Harry's offers a great shave at a good price, and they make it easy by shipping it right to your door. So get started shaving with a free trial set that includes a razor handle, five blade cartridge, and shave gel. It's a $13 value for free. Just cover the shipping. Go to harrys.com/fool. That's harrys.com/fool. There is nothing quite as
5: wonderful as money. There is
0: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Last week at the Motley Fool's annual Writers Conference, I got the chance to interview Stephen Perlstein in front of a live audience. A longtime editor and columnist at The Washington Post, Perlstein was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2008 for his commentary on the Great Recession. He first came to The Washington Post to be the deputy business editor. He was hired by the legendary Ben Bradley. Bradley actually hired Perlstein over the objection of every other editor on staff at the Washington Post. After talking about his early days in journalism, I asked Stephen Perlstein about his writing in the months that led up to the financial crisis. So let's fast forward to your column writing career because um, I spent a little time on the Pulitzer Prize website. Um, And one of the great things about the site is... um, it doesn't just say, well, here are the people who won. They give you the body of work for which the person is honored. Um, so you actually went back and read all that? I didn't say I read all of it. Oh, all right. <laughs> how, how, how was it okay? It's good stuff. Oh, okay. They knew what they were doing. Um, but uh, let's talk a little bit about that period of time because the columns that you were writing in early 2007 sort of lay the groundwork for... Um, the lead up to the financial crisis. So for anyone who's, you know, is familiar with the crisis and, uh, or even if you've merely just, you know, read the big short or something like that, I mean, it's easy to just immediately go towards the fall of 2008 when Wall Street was in meltdown mode, but you were writing in January, February of 2007, sort of seeing these pieces of the puzzle that slowly started to form. Um, What were you seeing at the time that got you concerned?
1: So I'm gonna do a little digression, but it will help answer this question. In those days, people who worked on newspaper business sections, they were either financial reporters, meaning they covered finance, they covered the markets basically. Sometimes you added banks to that, but there were those people. There were people who covered companies there were business reporters who covered the airline industry or the, you know, the steel industry or whatever. And then there were economic reporters who covered the economy, and they tended to cover economic policy as well, like you know, budgets and taxes and things like that. Um, and when I was an editor, I was very frustrated with this sort of division of labor, because it always seemed to me that if you could somehow put all of those things together, you'd have a much better sense um, of what was going on. The business reporters didn't know anything about economics and the economic reporters, I can assure you, didn't know how to read an income statement. Um, and uh, so that was a problem. When you're writing about the economy, you say, well, if you do this, businesses will do that. And you know, I would say, to them, will they ever, ever talk to a business? No, okay. So uh, anyway, I set out to, to do something different, which was to be none of those and all of them at the same time. So the first thing I need to tell you is I'm not a market reporter, and I wasn't a market reporter in 2007, when, as happens in any bubble, all market reporters read each other and tend to think alike. You know, they they operate like we all operate in a bubble. So I here I was confronted with something that I, I'll tell you about in a minute that that I didn't come, I hadn't read all the stuff. About mortgages, I hadn't read all the stuff of, about um, CDS and CDOs and and all that. I I, w- I was vaguely familiar with it, but I really wasn't that familiar with it. My if I had any specialty, it was in economics, not not in finance. Anyway, there was this thing called New Century Mortgage or something like that, um, and it had uh, it was it was going under, in. Uh, uh, that time, January and February, I believe, of 2007. And two things about it. There was an investment bank here in Arlington, in Roslyn, called F- Friedman, Billings and Ramsey. Well, it was a big deal at the time. It was a small but very fast-growing, very hot shop. They took a lot of banks public, but they did also a lot of, uh, you know, uh, investment banking having to do with mortgages and mortgage companies. In fact, they had taken New Century public. And uh, I had done some, uh, you know, in those days, Washington Post covered local businesses, and that was one of the things that I did. I wrote about local businesses, and I had written about Friedman, Billings, and Ramsey, and frankly, I'd always thought they were a little bit uh, sleazy. Uh, And then this thing happened with New Century, uh, and I started looking into new century and I started looking into what they did and um, I don't know I was calling around t- to some people in New York who to try to explain to me what these things were You know these CDOs and CDO squares and everything and basically when they were describing these things to me You know, I, I I'd say well. Let's slow down. Now, tell me how this works again and blah 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 blah, you know, I, I didn't know much and And I I kept having the reaction you mean they do that you mean, you mean they, they don't really check uh, on their on their income, uh, you know, people who borrow money? You, you mean they let people do 100% mortgages? You know, I, I didn't, I, I just couldn't believe they, you know, that they did that sort of stuff. Um, and so I was just sort of incredulous. I was sort of naive, because um, I hadn't seen the development of the shadow banking system. And when I finally came face to face with it and started asking questions, and by the way, You know who invested in New Century? Well, it turns out that Morgan Stanley was, you know, big, you know, had money in it, and these other big Wall Street firms. So I could start to see the the connections. That this wasn't just, this was connected to the to the to the regular banking system, Um, and I, I just was uh, thought it was nuts, and I also began to to make calls uh, and figure out. Well, it's not only nuts; it's very big. So, I discovered the shadow banking system in 2007. Um, I could see that it was unregulated. I could see that, in fact, um, the shadow banking grew up as a way around regulation. It's a way of of intermediating, um, you know, from savings to lending in a way that totally went around the regulatory system. There was no, not only was there no regulation, there was no capital requirements, there, there was nothing like uh, deposit insurance to prevent a run on this banking system. Um, and uh, the banks couldn't go to the Fed. These, the banks in the shadow banking system, like New Century, can't go to the Fed and get money in terms of w- w- if they have a liquidity problem. So all the architecture that had been developed ever since the New, the new Deal to make the banking system safe what the shadow banking system was was a workaround, a regulatory workaround. That's why, and that's why all the money was going through that other, those other channels. Um, so, because I wasn't just a finance reporter, and I wasn't just an economics reporter, and I wasn't just a regulatory reporter, I sort of connected these dots in a way that um, allowed me to say, "This is." crazy and it's big and when it comes crashing down, um, it's going to take us all with it.
0: So where do you think we are now with, you know, given that we're in year eight of a bull market and uh, housing has more than rebounded?
1: So again, I'm not in the world of financial writing and I don't spend a lot of time reading that stuff. For a number of years, and uh, if you go back you'll see it's actually been like four, I've been a bear. The Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world have pumped trillions of dollars of freshly minted money into the finance system, into the banking and finance system. Most of it is still sitting in central banks, but it's there and it's it's like Tinder waiting to be lit. They haven't absorbed it back. Um, it's sitting there. and. Its main effect in recent years, since the economy has, economies have rebounded, even in Europe, where is that money lent? Well, where it's lent at the margin is to buy assets. Real estate, stocks, bonds, artwork, um, and I happen to think that we have a bubble in assets created by this cheap money, and it's gotta get sucked up, and if it isn't, and it's got to, you know, the central banks have got to try to do it. This, the Fed has announced its plan now for how to how to sell off all those bonds that it bought that are now sitting uh, on its balance sheet, uh, balance sheet which grew from one trillion to five trillion, or one and a half trillion to five trillion. That's that's a lot. That's a lot of money. And the and the central central banks in Europe and Japan um, uh, made similar adjustments. Uh, the the central bank of Japan got to the point where the you know. The Central Bank of Japan, I think, owns a quarter of the, or third of the Japanese stock market. Uh, we didn't get to that point, but they have a smaller economy, and their central bank ran out of bonds to buy. They had to buy other stuff. So I think this is, has a lot to do with propping up um, the market and to some extent propping up the economy. Adjustment has to be made. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know what's going to trigger it. Um, obviously, we don't have the same kind of abuses that we had back then and one thing we know about financial crises is it won't happen in the same way it'll be something else that causes it um and it'll 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 um unwind in a in a a different way i don't necessarily think there is a crisis uh to be had uh but i think there's going to be a significant correction and i know that uh you know again just based on all these it's a sort of a naive thing um it's sort of a simple thing which is too much money out there in the financial system um, that has already caused uh, people to do crazy things, um, value certain companies in a crazy way, new, new companies, and uh, uh, pay ridiculous amounts for uh, houses in my neighborhood and things like that.
0: Uh, my last question, since I will, there's no chance I will ever know what this moment is like, uh, can you just share? what it was like to win the Pulitzer Prize? What was that moment? How did you
1: find out? I, I found out the Friday before. Um, really? Yeah. It got leaked to you? It, uh, the, the dirty little secret is that um, among the major newspapers, the decision is made the Friday before, and uh, let's just say it leaks out. To the, It leaks out in a very limited way to half a dozen people uh, at major newspapers who tell you whether you want or not. So at 3 o'clock on Monday when they announce it, and then they have the big celebration in the newsroom, um, you might ask yourself in newsrooms, well, how is it that they knew they were going to win that they ordered the champagne? And how is it that that Pearlstein's (laughs) wife and children were in the newsroom at 3 o'clock? I mean, how how is that possible? Uh, In fact, we in the post newsroom. The post wins Pulitzers fairly regularly, or uh, and when I was in the newsroom regularly, you sort of could tell who won because he or she wasn't there on Monday morning. Where, where, where's Steve? Uh, well, Steve knows he's going to win. He doesn't want to be anywhere around, uh, so he stays at home and you know presses his suit. So he comes in at three o'clock and uh, with his wife and kids and 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 has champagne. I'm not gonna tell you how, because I don't wanna get anybody in trouble, but uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, probably the Los Angeles Times, um, if someone of theirs won, they know. Tell me
0: at least this. Was it at least one of those managing editors who didn't want Ben Bradley to hire you?
1: Yes. Were they, were, was that, one of those that, people that, that had mani- to call that you? That managing editor called me into his office on Friday afternoon <laughs> and said, and by the way, that managing editor did not nominate me for a pulitzer prize i was not nominated by my paper i was nominated by somebody else that's delicious (laughs) the year that i won we won seven pulitzers uh and six of them were nominated by the washington post and there was me
0: stephen pearlstein is the embodiment of that great old adage living well is the best revenge Coming up, we're going to dip into the Fool mailbag, and we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Our email address is radio at fool.com from Alan Bishop, who writes Earlier this month, I ran my second half marathon and I opted to listen to Motley Fool Money. You delivered 40 minutes where I didn't have to think about questions like, why am I subjecting myself to this again? It must have worked because I set a personal record at one hour and 57 minutes. Wow. Thanks, and keep Man. up the great work. All right, Congrats to Alan, nice and thank you for giving us our new motto, Motley Fool Money, slightly less terrible than running 13 <laughs> Will, will miles. you be
2: listening to our show when you uh, run your marathon this weekend? The Marine Corps Marathon? Yes.
0: I will absolutely not be listening to this show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing that's, the show. I don't that, need to listen fair, to it. That's fair. Uh, please email us radio at because next week on our Market Foolery podcast, all week we're going to be doing in advance of Halloween, overrated and underrated candy, and we'll kick it off just going around the table real quick. Overrated Halloween candy, Ron Gross. What do you got? Don't send me email here. The regular milk chocolate M Ms and just the mini bag—they're
2: just not that good. Wow. That's a bold That's a call, Jason.
3: Moser, are overrated. Man, whenever I got home and I had a baby Ruth in that bag, that thing had a one way ticket to the trash uh, can. What? Don't like the I, oh the gosh. Gosh. I don't like the baby Ruth. I think it's the best. Don't like the baby Ruth. Wow, no, it's overrated.
4: It's Smarties, like I think they're cheap. They come in enormous bags. They're light. I think cheap homeowners
0: will buy them, they can throw them out to. You. I don't like Smarties. Are no way. Steve Broido, overrated candy. What do you got? Candy corn, kill it. Yeah. Oh really? Even even though it only comes, it's the limited edition one. I hate it. All right, wow. you, Under, got, you got one. Uh, I, Skittles. Okay. Just you know what? Just give it up, Skittles. And, <laughs> and by the way, the tropical Skittles. <laughs> Pack it in. They're not helping. <laughs> uh, underrated candy. What do you got? Uh, I got the payday. You got your peanuts. You got your caramel. Uh, you
3: got delicious. delicious. Mm. Jason. I love milk
4: duds. <laughs> Maddie? Rolo's. You don't see oh, them that wow. much, and I'm not even a big caramel fan, but Rolos are so good. They are. Steve, Lemonheads. <laughs> oh, really? Wow! Break oh, a tooth.
0: You know why? I think you think they're underrated because they're so low rated. They're uh, terrific. Take five. They're terrific. The Take, take five, five is bar. clearly,
2: but they're not underrated though. Oh, they're, they're they,
0: delicious. They're delicious, and they need to produce more of them. Chocolate pretzels, uh, peanut butter caramel peanuts. So take five. Amazing. Whoever's producing Take Five needs to up that production. I'm on board. Alright, email us radio at full.com with your stock questions, but really also your overrated and underrated candies. Let's get to the stocks on our radar this week. Ron Gross, what are you looking at?
2: I got McCormick, MKC, leading spice and herb company. Controls about 20% of the global spice market. Recently acquired RB Foods, which has Frank's Red Hot Sauce, which is a personal favorite of your, myself, me. Yours truly? Yeah, me, yes, that. Uh, they're going to cut $100 million, um, in expenses. That should improve margins. Dividend yield of 1.9%. They've raised it every year for the past 31 years.
5: Steve, question about McCormick? When do you know when you're supposed to replace your spices?
2: That, I'm glad that, people have
5: a... cinnamon in there that's been there since
2: the 70s. <laughs> no, I think, that, I think that's right. And I think McCormick would like you to replace that more often. I think three months is a good number.
5: Oh.
3: Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Uh yeah, taking a look at Boston Beer, ticker SAM. Earnings come out on Thursday, October 27th. And it's been on a slow move up since the middle of the year, and actually green for the year uh, to date. But I was reading some interesting chatter going on at the National Beer Wholesalers Association convention here recently. I know that's a you mouthful. You need a hobby, my friend. Uh, but they're talking about how beer is losing share to wine and spirits, especially with younger drinkers. And so, I just think that the companies that are first affected by this most are the real small. Producers, the microbrewers, where the economics are just not working in their favor. So I can't help but wonder if maybe we're not getting to that point where those multiples start coming down. Maybe we see some consolidation in the space. And really, it shines the light on one of Boston beer's biggest strengths in the, the distribution and, and the production on a national level. Steve, question about Boston beer? How many Boston beers do you normally drink before recording this show? <laughs> uh, if I answer that, I mean, are my superiors going to hear that? Let's let's talk about this after the after the show. Sounds good. Matt Argosinger, what are you looking at? I'm
4: looking at JD.com ticker JD. You know, Alibaba gets all the headlines, but I think if you really want to play the growth of e-commerce in China, I would go to the number two player, and that's JD.com. You know, Alibaba's has taken more much more of an eBay-like approach, light business model, let third-party sellers kind of handle fulfillment and shipping and things like that. JD.com instead has taken the Amazon model; they do all the fulfillment. Which I think is hugely important for quality, reliability, and um, really big in China, fraud. Um, so JD.com is my bet. Fifty-five billion dollar company, revenue is growing fifty percent annually over the last three years. Uh, it's only about the eighth the size of
0: Alibaba. No one at Jack Daniel's snapped up JD.com. <laughs> Whatever reason, JD.com got JD. Steve, question about JD.com. Does the delivery model make sense in China, being such
5: a large country with a very diverse terrain? I hope so. <laughs> That's actually a good question. Oh. It is.
0: <laughs> Steve, Boston Beer, McCormick, JD.com, three very different businesses. You got one you want to add to your watch list?
5: I'm feeling spicy, right? Nice, all right. Is there
0: a particular spice in your cabinet that maybe needs to be replaced? Um
5: probably. I don't use a lot of spices, but I just I know that they sit there for a while and they seem to age.
2: Montreal well, steak seasoning. Don't don't sh- you know, don't sell short that Montreal steak. Are, are, are really you, good stuff. You're a
0: pro on that? I am. All right, Ron Gross, Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Full Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido, our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.